This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we continue to explore major trends, strategies, technologies, you name it, the most important conversation starters for the larger energy industry. As we explore today's talking points, make sure that you are all caught up with previous opportune research and content, you'll want to head to our website, opportune.com. Again, that's opportune.com for more information on our solutions and services, uh, for more uh, articles and research, uh, especially around the topic we're going to be breaking down today. You can also find other episodes of E2B on our website. Uh, You can also find other episodes of E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button look up energy to business and you'll find a full catalog of previous conversations as well as notifications when we drop new episodes. So for today's episode of energy to business, we're going to be laying out some strategies for maneuvering the various options out there for taking your company public. Now you might think, yeah, IPOs, we know how to maneuver an IPO. We're familiar with an IPO. However, we're going to be expanding on a recent opportune article to draw some comparisons between IPOs and SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, as well as MLPs, master limited partnerships. What we're going to do is in comparing all of these, we're going to learn whether SPACs could potentially take a page from the MLP playbook. We're going to dig in a little deeper to make sure you fully understand that word salad there, but there are a lot of important insights uh, to be drawn from this compare and contrast. Now, as an initial sort of introduction to some of these concepts, IPOs, as most companies know, are the most common way to raise funds from public investors. This is via creating and selling stock on a public exchange. Easy enough, right? We also have SPACs, which functionally act as shell companies and go through a similar IPO process, but since they're created solely to merge with the, you know, quote unquote, true private company after raising said capital, they have little assets they need to disclose in their initial public offering, nor do their operations uh, impede or slow down that process as much as a fully fleshed out company. On top of that, You also have MLPs, which are pretty unique to our industry and the real estate industry as well, and uh, are publicly listed private partnerships with the tax advantages of a partnership as well as the liquidity advantages of stock. So there's a lot there, but we're going to draw those comparisons and we're going to better understand how can SPACs be a further useful strategy for companies in the larger energy industry. So for insights today, we're joined by Mr. James Hansen. He's managing director for Opportune Partners, which is the broker dealer affiliate of Opportune. James, welcome. Great to have you on, man. How are you doing? Thanks, Daniel. Always good to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure getting to chat on this topic. Uh, As I mentioned in the introduction, there is a full opportune article on this subject that I recommend folks go check out. It's titled, Should SPACs Take a Page from the MLP Playbook? And this was something that uh, you wrote and contributed to. So we'll link to that in the description of the podcast. Um, Now, before we get into the main topic, James, let's get a little background on you. Make sure folks understand the perspectives that you're going to be adding to the conversation today. So 
if you could just give us that elevator pitch, that executive summary on your background and uh, your career path, but more specifically, some touch points that you've had with this world of IPOs, SPACs, MLPs, kind of how that informs your perspective today. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Um, yeah, it's pretty pretty simple, really. I've been covering the energy sector for in in the investment banking context for basically my whole career, about thirty years. Uh, started out mainly in the bulge bracket, focused on uh, mostly the infrastructure side of the uh, energy sector, which included a lot of master limited partnerships. And then for the last uh, kind of second half of my career, I would I would say is is mainly been uh, a board advisory and uh, looking at transactions through the lens of fairness and solvency and uh, like I said, board advisory. So uh, run into a lot of conflict situations over the years, which was the impetus for this uh, this topic. Mm, perfect. Well, thanks for that background and information there. Let's get into the main topic then. Like you said. Um, you know, I'll harken back to my, uh, definitions during the introduction, uh, you know, those were very high level and I want to give you an opportunity to expand on this, but again, as an alternative to IPOs, special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs, uh, also get referred to as blank check companies. We've also seen them grow in popularity in recent years. So in 2020, just to give you some numbers, according to some Bloomberg data, uh, 248 SPACs were created with about $80 billion invested. That was in 2020. In 2021, there were a record 616 SPACs created, representing nearly $163 billion in capital raised. So um, almost, uh, you know, uh, four times growth uh, when you look at the number of SPACs and then uh, two times growth um, in terms of how much actual capital was raised. So let's get that definition out of the way. I did a, a very simple job, but uh, expand for our audience here for us. If you could just uh, explain what a SPAC is and the purpose that it serves in this larger ecosystem. Yeah, sure thing. Um, you, I mean, I think your explanation was was a, a great start. And, and honestly, a, a blank check company is a really good way to think about it. A, a SPAC, like you said, is is really formed and IPO'd without a specific business in mind. It's really just the promise of finding and acquiring a business. Um, and so people are essentially backing the sponsor, the, the, the uh, you know, people or management team that's going to be out there looking for opportunities. And, and the way a, a SPAC works is it's really three steps. So the first is the, the sponsor team forms the, the SPAC with, with no specific business or target in mind. And, uh, and like you said, uh, goes through an IPO process where the issue shares. Um, usually it's $10 a share, you know, kind of an arbitrary amount because you don't have a specific business in mind and raises sure. a, a certain amount of capital. As part of that process, the sponsor will get uh, what they call founder shares, which are you know essentially free or essentially free shares in the SPAC that go along with that. And then the sec second step in the process is the SPAC has two years to go out and search for a potential business to acquire. Uh, if they don't get a business during that time period, if they fail to acquire one, then then basically the shareholders end up getting their money back. All those the funds from the original original IPO were placed into blind trust and will be returned if if an acquisition doesn't take place in typically two years. Um, so during that two year process, they'll identify an acquisition. 
negotiate with the the uh, potential acquisition target, which is a, a unique aspect uh, in terms of uh, taking a company public. A, a, a lot of companies will like the fact that you know you you really have a lot more certainty in terms of how your um, business is going to go public and what the valuation is going to be. But once that once that negotiation has taken place, then the SPAC sponsor will present the SPAC uh, via proxy statement to the shareholders and there'll be a shareholder vote. And so the shareholders can vote either for or against the transaction. And then separately from that, uh, even if the transaction is approved, if there's a shareholder that doesn't like the transaction and isn't happy with it, they have redemption rights where they essentially get their money back plus some nominal interest. Um, so it's it's a very low, you know, for original investors in a SPAC, it's a very low risk way uh, to, you know, to potentially you know, sponsor a, you know, to, to, to back a sponsor in terms of looking for an acquisition. Mm. So when you compare that to the tried and true traditional IPO, what makes a SPAC an attractive proposition or option for going public? Um, you know, is it because of the expediency is it because of uh, you know some of the removal of red tape compared to taking a, a more fully established company public? What do you see as the main motivators, or I guess how would you vouch for a SPAC compared to an IPO? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a a great question, and and I think your question highlights you know why a why a SPAC from the context of a company's point of view. Why would you do you know why would you merge with a SPAC rather than um, you know, go go public, and I think you hit two of the two of the big ones right on the head. You know, certainly expediency is one. Uh, you know, you could just think about starting a company from you know taking it from a private company to an IPO is a very long process and a very expensive process. Um, in the context of you know, you, you could take up to two or even three years for a traditional IPO, whereas a typical SPAC. Uh, DSPAC transaction, as they call it, um, takes about, you know, usually three to four months. Um, the regulatory aspect is uh, is definitely a, a piece of it. Um, the, the, although the fact of the matter is the, the regulatory um, aspects don't completely go away uh, in, in the context of a SPAC, but the actual IPO process and, you know, what the IPO documents look like are a lot more straightforward. But if there's any, you know, kind of, you know, like if it's FCC regulations or antitrust or anything like that, I mean, those those kinds of regulations all still apply. But but certainly from the IPO standpoint, it's a lot easier. And then I would say probably the most attractive point that 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 people usually point to is the fact that it's it's a it's a certainty in terms of where your valuation is going to be, what the success is going to be. I mean, the the shareholders could vote down the SPAC certainly. Um, but, you know, if you think about a typical IPO, investment bankers set the price where they think is the, the right place is going to be. But it's not uncommon for IPOs to pop, you know, 50 percent after the IPO or, or, or you know, alternatively, it could be, uh, you know, a lower amount. And so therefore, um, you know, if, if, if an IPO pops, the, the companies, you know, pre-existing shareholders are really leaving money on the table and, you know, and vice versa. It could be a risk for, for investors. So companies really like the fact that you can negotiate with the SPAC sponsor, determine the price, set the economics, and then take it to market with that set level. Well, then it sounds like there are, 
reasons to leverage both. However, I'd imagine companies are probably more familiar with the legal intricacies of maneuvering an IPO compared to a SPAC, considering it's really as a, a means of going public, just now gaining this kind of steam it needs to become a standard. So I want to highlight, you know, maybe one component of a SPAC that was either, you know, recently challenged or, uh, you know, was given a new layer of um, legal intricacies. So there was a recent Delaware court ruling that found that despite the SPAC's shareholder vote and redemption feature you were mentioning earlier, there was actually an inherent conflict between the SPAC founders and directors because the founders' shares would uh, inherently be worthless in the absence of a de-SPAC transaction, and that this could create a potential incentive for the recommendation of a transaction that was worth less than the redemption price. So that's a you know a pretty layered dynamic in and of itself. Can you expand on this dynamic for our audience? Um, you know, get a little bit more specific on what this actually means, and explain what the implications of this court ruling uh, could have on this uh, quote entire fairness standard. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that's a, a really, uh, it certainly has been getting a lot of attention in the SPAC world, uh, this this court case. You're, you're referring to the, the multi-plan shareholder lawsuit mm-hmm. um, where uh, the, the it wasn't, the case itself wasn't settled, but what was de- decided by the Delaware court was whether or not the, the certainly the defendants, the multi-plan uh, participants uh, asked the court to dismiss the charges and the, the court uh, ruled that they were not dismissing the charges. And what was particularly, uh, as you alluded to, particularly interesting in this case is that they really advocated the application of the entire fairness standard. And, and maybe taking a really quick step backward just to understand what that, that means for, you know, really kind of almost all time, uh, at least in the United States, and this even harkens back to, you know, old English law, Managers and directors of companies were judged from a fiduciary standpoint, uh, from a legal fiduciary standpoint, uh, based on what was has been known as the business judgment rule. Um, and the business judgment rule is really just basically saying that if a manager or director operates in good faith, then you know they won't be held liable for the decisions that they make on behalf of you know shareholders or fiduciaries. And so uh, in 1983, there was actually a court case called Weinberger versus UOP, where the Delaware court introduced this concept of entire fairness. And, and, and that was a, a case where there was a conflict of interest between the chairman and, uh, and the shareholders. And, and basically, the, the net of it was is that entire fairness, uh, in the context of the, of the court decision, basically said that if you had a controlling conflict, so if you had a person who was, you know, defined as a controller of a transaction and there was a conflict of interest, then the decisions related to that decision were held to a higher standard. It wasn't just, you know, whether or not you, uh, you know, used good faith that really kind of anchored on two things, whether the transaction was you know, fair from a price standpoint, but not only that, but was the transaction fair in the way that it was uh, dealt with? Fair dealing is what they call it. And and so that could be, you know, how was the transaction presented? Who made the decision? What was the process that went into that decision? Um, you know, what, 
you know, what discussions took place, what negotiations. I mean, it's, it's a much broader view. And, and, you know, lawyers hate it when you have to have a lot of those subjective um, type uh, things that, that go into a legal standard. So, um, you know, so, so, so that's an area that uh, was really, uh, people really took notice when the Delaware court said that this multi-plan uh, SPAC uh, suit would be judged under the entire fairness standard. So then do you think this means that it will um, become a prudent legal protection going forward to seek some kind of fairness opinion? Uh, or I guess, what do you see as the consequences moving forward uh, just yeah. in general? Yeah, a fairness opinion is actually a, a, a great way to uh, protect against things like that. So if you're thinking about a potential conflict transaction where, you know, both price and process are at in, in question and, and you're a decision maker or a person who's, you know, trying to, to protect against that, hiring a third party and providing a fairness opinion can be a really good protection. It's used over the years to, to do that. Um, it's not not really just a piece of paper that says, yeah, the transaction's fair, but if a fairness opinion, if done correctly by an independent party, has, you know, behind it a lot of due diligence, a lot of questions being asked, um, a process in and of itself where, you know, details of a transaction are explored and looked at and, you know, really with the, the uh, from a lens of a, you know, a non-conflicted third party. So that, that can be a really good way um, to, to protect against uh, conflicts of interest. Hmm. So to bring in another layer now of potential strategies for going public, I mentioned this in the introduction as well, but we also have MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships. And from a conflict standpoint, uh, I guess playing off of the uh, Delaware court ruling we were just speaking on, MLPs and SPACs have some similarities. At the highest level, like I said, MLPs act like publicly traded entities, though they're taxed as partnerships, which companies can often see as a win-win. Um, now, in terms of the, you know, the conflict standpoint, or even at the highest level, just comparing the two strategies, what are some things or maybe some pages that SPACs can take from the MLP playbook? Is there anything of note here that you think could improve um, a SPAC's viability? Yeah, that's a really great point. Uh, MLPs and SPACs uh, certainly, in, at least in my opinion, have a, a lot of similarities. And, and the biggest of which is that both are formed uh, via, uh, typically via a relationship with a sponsor. So a, a SPAC you know, obviously has to be formed via a sponsor. Uh, MLPs are, are, were often formed um, as you know, publicly traded partnerships via uh, you know another either private or public company, and the typical business model within an MLP was that assets at the sponsor would be sold to, or the the, the term was dropped down uh, to the MLP, and each of those transactions would be potentially very attractive to the MLP, but could also be viewed as a conflict transaction because the, the sponsor or controlling entity for the MLP is the sponsor. So they're on both sides of the transaction. They're selling assets and they're, you know, negotiating for the MLP to buy assets. Now, one big difference between SPACs and MLPs is MLPs are not uh, publicly incorporated companies. Like you said, they're, they're, they're partnerships. So their fiduciary duty is defined by their partnership agreements. Mm. 
But over the years, MLPs have become really smart about that and have defined how they're going to look at these conflict transact transactions within their partnership agreements. And, and almost universally, the way that most MLPs uh, you know, set out that they're going to look at these is through something called special approval. And a special approval basically means that they're going to form a special committee, or sometimes they call it a conflict committee of the board of directors, independent members, and that those independent members members will deliberate and typically hire their own advisors and their own um, uh, uh, their own advisors, legal and financial, and they'll uh, get a fairness opinion. So, uh, so that process has been uh, fairly successful, barring a few very specific examples. Um, uh, but been very successful in protecting MLPs against claims of conflicts in the context of, of drop-down transactions. And so the thought here is that, you know, th this could be something that would be very attractive to SPACs. I mean, typically uh, SPACs have, a lot of people have thought of uh, SPACs in the context that you don't necessarily need a fairness opinion or need a special committee review because you have two pieces of structural protection that, uh, that, that most practitioners or observers have felt would cleanse conflicts. And, and the first is the big one, the shareholder vote. That's you know common across a lot of uh, different con uh, conflict transaction is that if you have a shareholder vote of the uninterested parties, that that is something that could potentially uh, cleanse conflicts. The other is the is the uh, repurchase right. So if you're not happy with the transaction, you can uh, you you can repurchase it. But again, this multi-plan uh, decision or preliminary decision uh, really calls into question uh, some of those protections and and whether or not you know kind of a, the belt and suspenders of a independent committee in fairness opinion could potentially bring to SPACs. Well, luckily for SPAC target acquisition management teams, uh, protection from these kinds of legal challenges and potential conflict transactions is already a, a well-traveled path in Delaware case law. Uh, I'm curious if you can give some more examples for our audience so they can really contextualize that full scope. But can you briefly explain some cases that have held precedent and why an, in, uh, excuse me, an independently provided fairness opinion provides the optimal kind of protection against these legal challenges instead of, uh, you know, maybe draw some comparisons to non-independently provided fairness opinions? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Actually, uh, you're right. This is a very well-traveled path. It, it really harkens back all the way to 1985. There was a Delaware case called Smith v. Von Gorkum, where the court found that the directors were negligent in their review of and um, and 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 uh, approval of a transaction that involved a, a conflict of interest, and the court specifically said in in their decision that the directors could have mitigated these claims of negligence by obtaining an independent fairness opinion. And so, really, from 1985 until today, fairness opinions have have really become the gold standard in terms of protecting against conflicts of interest in, in these kind of, you know, control conflict transactions. So then in summary, what might be some other things that people should know about SPACs? And to keep the Delaware court case front of mind, um, 
what else should people know about how that latest Delaware court ruling could have some implications on transactions and how they'll be uh, eventually evaluated in the future? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a, another great point. And the, the Delaware court was in multiplan was very uh, specific and careful to mention that that wasn't simply the fact that there was this control conflict uh, situation uh, that that, you know, that made them make this decision. It was like a lot of court cases. It was kind of a mosaic of a, a lot of different things, not the least of which was the fact that the proxy materials failed to disclose a very important piece of uh, information. The fact that, you know, one of Multiplan's largest uh, customers was uh, considering doing what Multiplan does, but in-house. So uh, the loss of that customer, you know, would have been a material piece of information that shareholders would have wanted to evaluate in the context. So that was, that was certainly a, a piece of it. But again, from, from my perspective, as I look at it, you know, wh why not go through the, you know, the, 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 uh, the rigorous process of reviewing a transaction from a third party or independent viewpoint in order to really make sure that your belt and suspenders covered in terms of potential conflicts of interest. All right, James. Those are the core insights that we wanted to break down on the podcast today. What I want to do is pose up a last question that's a little bit more strategic here just to wrap things up. So we've touched on and reviewed um, you know, how IPOs compare to SPACs. We've also, also compared uh, how um, SPACs uh, relate to and can even draw influence from MLPs. If you had to lay out sort of a, a summarized strategy for when to implement each in the current context of our industry today, could you lay out some of that advice or draw you know, the pros and cons of weighing each in a going public strategy? Yeah, I, 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 again, you know, I, I think that, you know, my thoughts with regard to multi-plan are really just more, you know, how could a spec protect themselves? Sure. Um, but it, you do bring up a good point. I mean, really, MLPs are very specific because uh, the, the assets that can be put into an MLP are, are defined by the tax regulations that have to be qualifying assets. So from that standpoint, most people or most companies would really you know, look at it more from the standpoint of IPO versus SPAC. And you know, while this multi-plan decision, you know, does create some uncertainties in terms of you know you potentially needed to protect against these conflict of interests, um, you know, especially over the course of the pandemic, uh, and and a lot of the uncertainties that have kind of surrounded the IPO market, companies have have really looked to SPACs to say this is a way where we can get a little more certainty vis-a-vis -vis a very, you know, conflicted market or a very, you know, volatile market. Um, you know, that being said, the SEC and others are, um, you know, the, the, people are taking a hard look at SPACs given this huge boom of growth uh, over the last few years. In fact, the SEC just last month came out and said that they're reviewing the rules that have to do with the initial public offering documents. Uh, typically in an IPO, you can't use forward-looking statements. Um, and But under you know safe harbor rules, if it's not an IPO, you can use forward-looking statements in your disclosure statements. And so SPAC proxies, DSPAC proxies, I should say, the, the merger 
you know, the, the documents that describe the merger usually include forward-looking statement, which is a huge um, benefit to companies who, especially our earlier stages, as sometimes specs have tended to be more almost leaning towards the venture side of the world, um, have used forward-looking statements to say, you know, this is what we expect uh, to our company going forward. So the SEC may put restrictions on that going forward, which would potentially limit some of those types of companies. So a lot of moving pieces, um, but but certainly I would be surprised if uh, if the some of the, the time elements and the certainty elements of SPACs didn't continue to remain attractive for a lot of companies looking to go public. And then to keep it back on the legal protection side, uh, if you had to lay out some strategies for how companies can start to lay that legal protection groundwork uh, in a way that is, um, I guess, conscientious of the value of each of those going public options, right? Uh, and do you see strategies for developing those legal protections needing to necessarily be siloed to protection strategies for MLPs, for IPOs, for SPACs, or is there crossover there that can inform a more holistic strategy? Yeah, uh, MLPs, like I said, certainly, um, you know, have a very defined strategy. This is tried and tested over years and years. Um, yeah, IPOs are, you know, kind of by their definition, um, you know, have, have a certain level of protection just by the fact that there's, you know, extensive disclosure about the IPOs themselves and, and, and rarely, honestly, rarely a conflict of interest in the context of an IPO. But the SPAC, given the fact that if a SPAC doesn't take place, the founder shares are worthless. Um, the, 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 again, taking multi-plan to a you know kind of a further level down. What what the court was concerned about is that even if the the transaction would be potentially value destructive versus ten dollars a share, that the that the shareholders could redeem their their SPAC shares at. Um, versus a transaction that would be potentially worth less than that, it, it's definitely a conflict of interest because anything is worth more than nothing to the founders. Where anything less than ten dollars would be, uh, you know, value destructive to the multi-plan shareholders or to the to the SPAC shareholders. So, um, you know, from from that standpoint, while there, you know, while there, it's a it's a case by case basis. I, I think you'll see, and you know, I've already you know had conversations with a lot of lawyers about this. You know, I think you'll see people having more and more conversations about the potential benefit of appointing a special committee uh, to evaluate these transactions and may, potentially even making a recommendation with a you know outside advisor and fairness opinion. All right, James. I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Final thoughts for our audience or anything you want to leave them with as we close? Uh, no, I think we've, we've covered it. Thank you. Fantastic. James, it's really been a pleasure getting to pick your brain today on uh, what SPACs can learn from the MLP playbook and doing a, a higher level comparison between the viability and some of the issues around legal protections when comparing IPOs, SPACs, and MLPs. Again, folks, if you want more information on this subject, James wrote a great article titled, Should SPACs Take a Page from the MLP Playbook? You'll see this on our website, opportune.com. And again, folks, we've been chatting with James Hansen, Managing Director for Opportune Partners, the broker-dealer affiliate for Opportune. James, if folks want to get in touch or uh, they want to source you for some other insights on the topic, how can they do so? Yeah, definitely. Uh, all my contact information is on our website, opportune.com. And I look forward to, to discussing this with people. 
Fantastic. James, really appreciate your time. Thank you again. And we'll be in touch and uh, looking forward to sourcing you on the next episode. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want some previous episodes or you want to make sure you're all caught up uh, and ready to catch future insights from the team, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com, for all of the above. And you can also subscribe to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Energy to Business. Energy to Business.